Good afternoon, church. Um, yeah, super, super excited. Really stoked to be able to share with you all today. I was telling Pio Pio, you need to sit closer, so if I say something hard, that you can just kick me. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited my mom's here today, so ooh, I'm really excited for her. I've, I've got a... <laughs> Yeah, my mom said, I don't invite her when I preach, and so we invited her, and she's here. So yeah, bless the Lord for that. I uh, got a couple of my friends and some family here, some guys, um, like my old gangster friends sitting at the back there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited, you know, and I, I just want to really get into it, and, and I want to pull a Tony on you quickly, um, and I'm going to say this. If I were to title this message, I'll call this message this. <laughs> <laughs> who are you wearing? I know you ha must have heard this question before, you know, the Grammy Awards or those red carpet events, the, the Emmys and all of that. So the celebrities get asked this question, who are you wearing? And they'd respond with this famous designer's name, Louis Vuitton or all of that. But I'm not talking about a material clothing today. I'm talking about something much more spiritual. So we all are wearing something the good and the bad. So who are you wearing? And so I want to kind of give you guys a lens through which we're going to look at this passage. I've, um, the passage we're going to look at is Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20. But before we jump into that, I want to give you a lens. Like the way you, when you watch a movie in 3D, you wear a set of 3D glasses, right, so that you can see the movie in 3D. And so by the introduction, that's really what I want to do. And so the first thing I have is uh, I've got a, a prop of myself there. Um, Odine, if you can put that old picture up. <laughs> yeah, revealing something. <laughs> we can make it a little bit, it's a little blurry, but cool. <laughs> By looking at that picture, I want to ask you, what does this tell you about that person? Ah, I, need, I need some answers. <laughs> so what does it tell you about me? Come, I need some answers. Sadika, you tell me. Gangster? Come? That's my, that's, that's my wife, by the way. And she fell for that guy. So, by the way, she fell for that guy. <laughs> so, like by looking at that picture, you see I've got a thick silver chain, thick silver bracelet, body full of tattoos. Like this picture tells you something about this person. Because what I'm wearing there materially is actually reflecting something more spiritual. If I tell you about this man, this was a very violent man. There's people, you guys don't, everybody don't know me from my old life here, but there's a few people here that do know me from my old life. So when I share stories about this guy, people are shocked. I was telling Tony, Pierre, maybe Jethro, I was telling them about this account, um, one, um, I had this friend, um, a girlfriend, I was quite close with her, and um, what, some altercation had happened between her and her boyfriend and some other guy. So long story short, she got hit in this whole fight, and so she called me, because I'd now built a reputation for being somebody that fights a lot. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to come and sort them out. So at that time, I don't have a car. I called my friend Kenwin. I was like, Kenwin, can you take me through to Belgravia? Because I'm in Bridgetown, that's in Belgravia. So at the time, Sean is actually, he's just been in an accident. They actually flew over a dam with a car, and Sean's leg was shattered, teeth broken, all of that. But so Sean couldn't go work, so they go and they drop Sean at home. So lo and behold, in the time when they drop Sean, the boyfriend and his friends pull up at my house. But they're not there to come and fight me or anything. They're actually coming there to explain their side of the story. 
so that she doesn't tell me first. But she already told me. So before they could explain anything, I came out with a panga. And if you don't know, if you know what a panga is, for those that don't know, it's a machete, it's a big blade, and I beat all of them up. I hit them all, I hit the windows in, my brother Marco is always my accomplice, he jumped in with me, hit some windows in. I smashed each and every window, I got in that bonnet, I smashed in the windscreen, and I put the, the boyfriend in hospital. I hit him over the head with a with panga. And so, that's the kind of man I was. So now when I tell you about this man, you find it hard to believe that this guy and that guy is one and the same people. And there's a reason for that. Because what he was clothed in and what I'm clothed in is completely different. He's clothed in something violent, a guy with a short temper, a guy with a short fuse, whereas this man is clothed in something of Christ, a new man created after the image of Jesus Christ. And so this theme, <laughs> this theme of being clothed in Christ, it's throughout the scriptures you see that. So from the very beginning, God creates man in his image. Man perfectly reflects who God is, the person, the nature, the character of God. In fact, man is God's ambassadors to creation. So things are very well, things are so good. Man walks in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day with God, like intimacy, like how more intimate can you get that you walk with God in the garden? That's the type of relationship that man had with God. But then something happened. Sin entered in. And instead of man now reflecting who God is, man started to reflect something else. Man started to be clothed in something different, something of this sin. And so we start to see this concept in the scriptures, but clothed in filthy garments, like Zechariah 3 verse 3. Um, you don't need to really pull it up. It um, speaks about being clothed in filthy garments. Psalm 109 verse 18 talks about somebody being clothed in a garment of cursing. Psalm 73 verse 6 talks about somebody having pride as their necklace and being clothed in garments of violence. So see this concept of people wearing something. And so there's this interesting Greek word called, you know I have to do a Greek word, right? Like I can't preach without doing a Greek word. And so... There's this word called as a savior. So I actually learned this from Mornay van der Waal. He did this, um, the foundations course that we're still going to do as a combined community. He says that this Greek word is one of the English words for the word sin. And he explains the meaning of this word as meaning twistedness. It says this thing literally twists you out of the image of God. That's what sin does. And so I did a bit of digging, as I like to do, to find out how this word was used in ancient times, and I discovered that this word was actually a criminal charge. So this criminal charge was for des desecrating divine objects. So if you were a pagan living in pagan times, and there was a pagan idol of Zeus over there, and you came in and you desecrated that, you graffitied it, you damaged it, so now that idol no longer looks what it's supposed to look like, they would charge you with this word, a savior. And that's what sin does to you and to me, it twists us out of the image of, of God. So now the scriptures also start to tell us about this God. The God that we are meant to reflect. The God that we are supposed to be created. We are created in his image, but something's happened. Who we meant to reflect tells us about him. That he's gracious, merciful, kind, slow to anger. It tells us what pleases him, what displeases him. And now we start to also see in the scriptures that this God pursues this broken man. 
the man that no longer reflects him. And then when man encounters this God, he clothes them with something of himself. And he changes them. And now we start to see a new concept of being clothed in garments of salvation, being clothed in the spirit, being clothed in Christ. And so now this new transformed man, he goes and he impacts the world for this God. And that's kind of the lens that I want to give you as we jump into this passage. And if you can just pull up Mark chapter 5, um, verse 1 to 20, we'll read it. I'll pray for us and then we'll jump right into it. So this is a very famous account of the, the demon-possessed man. So verse 1 says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And so this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So a large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged him, Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out, and they went into the pigs, the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake where they were drowned. And those tending to the pigs ran off and reported this into the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to, to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. <clears throat> and those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, who had been demon-possessed, begged him to go with him. <laughs> and Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family, tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how kind and, okay, at least, um, how mercy, how he had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in, de in, the, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, so, throat is a bit dry. Yeah, let's just close our eyes and just commit this time to the Lord. Lord, such a privilege, Lord, to even be able to share to your church today. I want to pray, dear God, Lord, would you just, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say today. Lord, would you break your word open, Lord? Would you give us understanding? And would you minister, Lord, to people in a powerful way today? I pray, Lord, would you even cut hearts today? I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> cool. So I am dry. I've, been, I've had actually this weird um, week of prepping. 
I actually prepped so little with my notes this week because most of my prepping was actually driving in the car. And so when I actually finally had to use my notes, I felt like I was confused because I was just prepping without notes all the time. But anyway, let's jump into it. So the first thing what I want to look at is the profile of the man. What the man is clothed in or the individual, what is he clothed in, right? And so the first thing we notice about this man is that he is possessed by many demons. In fact, he is possessed by a legion of demons. Now, a Roman legion consisted of up to 6,000 Roman soldiers. So this man is literally possessed by thousands of demons at the very same time. Now, you have to but ask yourself the question is, what kind of life did this guy live? Now, the scriptures don't tell us what led to him being possessed by these demons. But you can be assured that it was sin. Sin that opened him up to that place where he was totally taken captive by these demons. Now, the scriptures do tell us what he was like, what he was clothed in, how he behaved himself. So he could not be bound. He was defiant of all authority, angry, uncontrollable, no self-control, wild, naked, beside himself, constantly in torment. And he lived in isolation in the tombs. This man was isolated from fellowship. Now, that's what sin will do to you. Sin will separate you and isolate you from true biblical fellowship. Sin will keep you away from those who hold you accountable to God. That's what sin will do to you. When Adam and Eve sinned in the beginning, the very thing they first did was try to isolate themselves from God. They hid themselves because their sin had now made them naked and ashamed. And so they hid themselves. This man lived in the place of the dead. This is symbolic of something being spiritually dead or even unclean according to the law. It's safe for us to say that this man is not reflecting the God that he was created to, right? But the thing is this, we can look at a man like this, and it's easy for us to say, I'm not as bad as him, isn't it? Isn't that what the world loves to do? I am not as bad as him. But the truth is this, this man is in fact the picture of each and every one of us outside of Jesus Christ. Because just how broken this man was, Outside of Christ, you are that broken. Because the same sins that he was clothed in, outside of Christ, you are clothed in. You see, the problem that we have in this world is that we love to create categories. So we've got this category of the very bad sinners, and then we've got the sin that we condone. So we'll throw the demon-possessed man into that very bad category. Along with him, we'll put the rapists, the drug addicts, the gangsters, the tickopper. We'll put them into that category. But in the other category... We'll put the liars. We'll put those that gossip. You'll put them in there. Those that have sex outside of marriage, you put them in there. Because that's the sins the world is fine with. Those who get drunk of alcohol, those who get high of dacha, you'll put them into a category that you are comfortable with. Because that's the sins the world is comfortable with. But according to the scriptures, there's one category, and they all have the same destination. It's hellbound. That's what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 10. If you could just pull that up for me. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's all that have sex outside of marriage, 
nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the homosexual offenders, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So in that category, all the things I just mentioned you can put in there, not the liars, not the gossipers, not those that kill, not those that murder, they all go into this one category. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior today, that's your destination, hellbound. Now when I talk about knowing Him as your Lord and Savior, I'm not talking about some intellectual knowledge acknowledging who He is. The demons knew who he was, and they trembled and fell at his feet. When I talk about knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm talking about being born again by his Holy Spirit. I'm talking about repenting of your sins, forsaking your sins, and devoting your life to Jesus. Do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior? You see, the world that we live in has created a Savior that will allow you to live in your sin, that will allow you to continue sinning the way you want, We've created a hyper grace, a false grace, a grace that allows you to continue sinning each and every day and saying, I'm going to be with Jesus one day. That's a false grace. In fact, true grace, if you really understood it, grace really transforms your life. In fact, it's grace that will teach you to live a holy life according to Titus 2 verses 11 to 12. That's what true grace is. Now, there is grace for us because we do sin and we do fall short of God's glory as Pierre pointed out, there is grace for that. But what I'm talking about is people who continue to live in sin woefully, and you think that you're under grace. That's a false grace. Remember, this man did not start as a demon-possessed man. He started sinning. He started doing the same things that you might be doing. He might have had sex outside of marriage. He might have been getting drunk of alcohol. It might have been a liar and a gospel. I don't know. But the scriptures are clear. Sin starts small, but when it's full grown, it will lead to death. The end goal of demonic activity and the end goal of sin is to bring you into a place of captivity when you go and take you to a place of being hellbound. Stop categorizing sin. Stop playing with sin. Repent of it. Turn away from it. So the next thing I want to look at is the profile of the people. The identity of the people. What was the society clothed in? So the first thing I really grappled with is, you could possibly put verse 14 to 17 um, of um, Mark chapter 5, if you maybe just can keep that up. So the first thing I really grappled with is, who are these pig farmers? Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Who are they? Now the easy conclusion to come to is that they are Gentiles because they had pigs. So Jews were not allowed to have pigs because it was against the law. They weren't allowed to farm pigs. They weren't allowed to eat pigs. So the easy conclusion here to come to is this is Gentile. In fact, many commentators, they actually point to that. It's Gentiles. But actually, these commentators that have a very different opinion of this. And I did some, deep, um, some digging, and I discovered something very interesting. In fact, this region where this account is happening, this is actually the very same region where the tribe of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and the tribe of Reuben had settled on the east of the Jordan River. This is where they settled. And Numbers 32, if, you, if we can just look at verse 1, um, if we could pull that up. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, had, a very, had very large herds, flocks, and saw that the lands of Gaza and Gilead were suitable for livestock. 
Isn't that ironic? There's pig farmers here. So there's a big possibility that these pig farmers are in fact Jews. And if they were Jews, then that means they were people of such compromise. They had no regard for God's laws. They possibly didn't eat those pigs. They most likely sold it to the Gentiles that they were living in and around them. But that was still breaking God's law. That was a people of compromise. A people that woefully disobeyed God's laws. Now you think of this demon-possessed man, 6,000 demons, wild, naked, running around. You think he was bad. His people were worse than him. They cared more about their own self-interest than they cared about a man that had been tormented, a man that had ran wild in these cities, now finally delivered and set free by Jesus. Instead of rejoicing with him, they were angry. They were fearful. They begged Jesus to leave. They cared more about their own self-interest, lovers of money, because that pigs was their business. That's what they cared more about. You know what's quite interesting about these people is that they were actually more comfortable having demon-possessed men living in their city than they were with having Jesus there. Jesus had just performed a mighty miracle, and they begged him to leave. By the way, there were two demon-possessed men. Mark chapter 5 only covers this one because he's the more prominent. So there were, in fact, two living in the tombs. If you can pull up 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 for me, please. This is Paul talking about how people will be in the last days. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. People that call good evil and evil bad. Doesn't that look like the society that we live in today? Doesn't that look like the world that we are in? We live in a world that is crying out for the right to kill babies in the womb. Can you believe it? This world literally screams for that right to murder innocent babies in the womb. They call good evil and evil good. What about being lovers of themselves? You know what Facebook bullying is? Cyberbullying? A few years ago, Remember, there was this man that caught his wife red-handed in a relationship or with another guy, and he made a video. He posted this video on social media. Everybody went crazy. They shared this video, and they posted memes and making fun of this woman, naming and shaming her. No one cared about the consequences that this would have on this woman because they cared only about themselves. What if this woman killed herself? What about a family that's innocent in this matter? What about the shame it would cause to them? What if she had children? Imagine her children could never go to school again because you posted memes about her mo their mother. What if she could never get a job again in the rest for the rest of her life because she's shamed everywhere because of what you posted? You see, this world is a fallen one. This world doesn't resemble or reflect the God that we are created to reflect. Instead, this world is clothed in something very different. The scriptures tell us to not allow this world to shape us. Romans 12 verse 1 to 2 tells us that we shouldn't be conformed um, to this world, but instead we should be renewed by our minds. You guys okay? 
I felt like preaching today. I, I normally I'm the guy that likes to teach, but today I'm, I'm feeling that preaching spirit. So, <laughs> so, moving on, we want to look at who Jesus is. He is the profile of Jesus, the character, the nature, the heart of him, the person of Jesus Christ. So we just saw um, the unmovable object of the sin in the life of the individual, and then we saw the unmovable object of the sin in the society. And now they are coming up against the unstoppable force that is Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we want to look at is, so before I get into that, so, so these four things is just about the character and the nature of Jesus Christ, the God that we are meant to imitate, the one that we are meant to reflect, we are told to put on, um, we're told to put the Lord Jesus Christ on. And so these four points is just quickly, four short points to just go through about who he is. Right? So the first one is that Jesus is intentional and he seeks out the lost. So in chapter 4, you don't need to go to that. Jesus literally crosses the sea in the raging storm to reach this man. Now the storm was so bad that seasoned fishermen were fearing for their life. And Jesus went through that storm to get to this man. He was there specifically for him because Jesus had an appointment with this man. When no one cared about this man, when everyone was fine with this man going to hell, when they were fine with him living in the tombs, Jesus cared. Jesus pursued him. When no one cares about you, when everyone is fine with you going to hell, Jesus is caring about you. He's the lover of your soul. That's who he is. That's the nature and the character and the heart of Jesus Christ. You know what's the interesting thing? A mind blow is that God is self-sufficient. God is self-reliant. He doesn't need any one of us, yet he pursues us. God doesn't need me. He can make another me out of the rocks. But yet he chose to save a sinner like me. Because that is the heart of Jesus. That is who he is. Yeah, I'm, I'm burning here, guys. <laughs> Matthew 18, verse 12. We could just pull from, from 12 onwards. Jesus teaches about the parable of the lost sheep. Now, I'm not going to read the verses. So Jesus says, if any man has a hundred sheep and he loses one, he will leave the 99 behind to go in pursuit of the one that was lost. And when he finds that one, he rejoices. Did you know that every time a sinner repents of his sins and turns to Jesus, heaven is rejoicing for you? Because that's who Jesus is. Jesus pursues sinners like you and like me. He is the good shepherd that's come to seek and save sinners like you and like me. Moving on to the next thing that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm possibly getting this from just verse 6 to, to 8, and I'm not really going to read that, is that his power is unmatched. His power is unrivaled. You know, the world loves to paint us a false view. They paint us this view of this arm wrestling match between Satan and Jesus. And sometimes Satan's winning, and sometimes Jesus is winning. But that's garbage. 6,000 demons tremble at his feet and beg him for mercy. No one could contain this man. 
The army couldn't contain him. They shackled and chained him. But at the feet of Jesus Christ, he falls and begs for mercy. Because Jesus is all-powerful. His power is unmatched, unrivaled. Isn't that encouraging for us as a church? That that is the God that we serve. That nothing that you face today in this world is too hard for him. There's nothing, no storm, no trial, no tribulation, nothing you go through is too hard for him. Colossians, if you could just pull up Colossians 2 verse 15. This is what Jesus Christ did at the cross of Calvary for me and for you. He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. That's what he did for you and for me because he is all-powerful. What he did at the cross of Calvary is enough for you and for me because that's who he is. And the third thing that we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, of who he is, is that he transforms lives. Now, first, verse 15 is probably my favorite verse because I love what the author does. He changes the identity of this man. His identity goes from him that's possessed by the legion to him who had been possessed. And I love what he then does. He says, he's sitting there now, clothed in his right mind. I know this is the NIV here. Apologies for it. <laughs> but, but other versions says he's clothed and in his right mind. Because Jesus had changed this man. Jesus had transformed him. Jesus had taken him into a new identity and clothed him with something different. Jesus had taken him from one thing into another, from death into life, from being far off to being brought near, from being an alien to being into the family of God. That's what Jesus Christ did for him. I was once upon a time a violent man, a sexually immoral drunk odd. I was being locked up, selling drugs, using drugs. But today I'm telling you about Jesus. Because that's who he is. And that's what he does. Now this church is full of that testimonies. That Jesus took people from one thing into another. Because that's what Jesus does. Now if Jesus could do that for me. If Jesus could do that for the people around you, if Jesus could do that for a man that everyone thought is too far gone, then Jesus can do that for you. If you don't know him as your Lord and as your Savior today, Jesus can do that for you. Because that's who he is. That's the person of Jesus. He saves people. And then the next thing we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ is that his wisdom and his ways are higher than ours. So three requests get put out to the Lord Jesus Christ in, in this account. The demons ask him, please don't send us to hell. Send us to the pigs. And the people ask him, please don't stay here, Jesus. Please leave. And then the man who's not set free and in his right mind asks him, Jesus, can I go with you? Now, if you put that to me, you say, Lira, you answer that. I'll say no to the demons, no to the people, and come, Mr. Delivered Guy, you come with me. But our ways is not his ways. His will, purpose, and plan is different to ours. He sees things that we cannot see. Verse 20 says, 
that Jesus had sent him out to the people. He said, go and tell the people the good things the Lord has done for you and how compassionate the Lord has been for you. And it says he went out not just into his city, but he went into the broader region of Decapolis. And it says the people marveled at what Jesus had done for him. They marveled at what Jesus had done. Now the scriptures end there. We don't hear about this man again. But history remembers him. In fact, this man went out and evangelized that region. Some commentators actually refer to him as the first apostle to the Gentiles. You know, you can tour Israel today and you can go to this very place. It's actually called Kursi now. And the tombs are still there. In fact, there's a church that's in ruins there that was built in honor of what Jesus Christ had done for this man on that day. Because this man went out and he evangelized that place. And I dug a little deeper and I discovered something quite interesting that this region was actually one that was quite strategic in those days. In fact, Alexander the Great had later come and conquered there. The Ottoman Empire actually also came and conquered there. So all these people from different parts of the world came to this specific region. And if we know anything about the gospel, some of those people might have gotten saved. And the gospel might have gone out into different parts of the world because of what Jesus done for this man. This is one of the greatest lessons in evangelism that we see here. This man went and he impacted the world for Jesus Christ. He went in his new identity, clothed in a new identity, but he had no evangelism training. He was most likely a Gentile from a very pagan background with little to no scriptural knowledge. He didn't have any evangelism training, nothing like that. All he knew was Jesus and what Jesus had done for him, that Jesus had clothed him in a new identity. Jesus had clothed him in something of himself, and he went and he impacted the world for Jesus. This man had seen firsthand that Jesus was intentional, that Jesus sought out the lost. He went and he sought out the lost. He'd seen firsthand that Jesus' power was unmatched. He walked in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Nothing he was going to face in that world would be too hard for him. He saw Jesus transformed lives. He took that message of the gospel and he went. He saw Jesus' ways was higher than his ways. He trusted in Jesus' wisdom. And he impacted that world. History is still talking about him. We're talking about him today. Because he was obedient. Now if we want to impact Woodstock, Cape Town, our families, and the world for Jesus Christ, then you need to be clothed in Christ. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be a loving apostle for him, an ambassador for him. What is the world seeing you? For some people, you'll be the only Bible that they will ever read. Now, being clothed in Christ isn't just a once-off event. It's not just a once-off thing. In fact, there's three parts to being clothed in Christ. And the first one is justification. At the point of salvation, Jesus clothes you with garments of salvation. Now your positional standing in Christ is now made righteous because what Jesus Christ had done for you. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3 verse 27 to 28, for as many of you that has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. Then the next one is sanctification. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are daily denying yourself. 
daily dying to yourself and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day. The scriptures tell us that we are being transformed into his image. That day by day we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created us. Doesn't that sound like what God did in the beginning? Created man in his image. That's Colossians 3 verse 9 to 12, by the way. I don't need to put it up. Romans 13, um, verse 13 to 14. Paul says to the Roman church, and this is a church he's writing to. He said, let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not, okay, let me just read this version. <laughs> the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light and let us behave decently in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. Rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think, or don't make provision for your flesh. That's what the, the New King James says. Don't make provision for your flesh. And then there's the third part, which is glorification. Now on this side of eternity, we are faced with our flesh. We have our flesh to contend with. We have trials, tribulations, struggles, weaknesses, and all of those things. But one day, this bodies, this mortal bodies will put on immortality. In the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and we will be as he is. God's work of reconciliation will come full circle. We will be able to spend each and every day in the presence of God, worshiping him, where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and trials and tribulations and your flesh to contend with. But on this side of eternity, we do have the flesh to contend with. And that's why the apostles, they keep emphasizing making no provision for your flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the apostles knew something. They knew that the flesh is a danger to you. The flesh can cause so much destruction. The flesh can, in fact, make you ineffective for God's kingdom. Your flesh can even cause you to fall away from the truth. There's this very interesting account in the Old Testament of King Saul. And very fitting for this. When Saul gets chosen to be the first king of Israel, he technically comes into this new identity. But before Saul becomes the king, Saul's got a problem in his flesh. He struggles with insecurities. When Samuel comes to Saul and he says, you'll be the king of Israel, he says, how can I be the king of Israel? I come of the least of these families. Then it comes time for them to coronate Saul as king. Where do you find Saul? Saul's hiding under the luggage. Saul is insecure. He eventually does become king and he starts off really well. He starts off so well, has all these amazing victories and battles. But Saul doesn't deal with his flesh. And it comes to creep up on him. And when God gives him an instruction, instead of being obedient to God, his insecurities kick in and he becomes a people pleaser. And he pleases the people instead of pleasing God. And that leads to his destruction. That leads to the kingdom being stripped away from him and given to David. Now David comes along. And now there's a giant that's taunting Israel, coming out each and every day, cursing them and shouting taunts at them. The insecure king is in the tent, shaking in his boots. If anyone has to face the giant, mustn't it be Israel's tallest, most handsome man? And that's him. They said he was the tallest, most handsome man, but he's shaking in his boots. 
And David comes along and he says, I'll face that giant. Walking in his new identity, clothed in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll face that giant. And I find it so interesting that in the tent, Saul tries to clothe David in something of himself. He tries to put his garments on David. And David says, I can't fight in this. Because David had seen God had delivered him out of the hand of the bear and the hand of the lion. And he went filled with the Spirit and he slayed that giant. See, there's an interesting lesson for us to learn out of the life of King Saul. That you have to put off your flesh. That you have to die to yourself. That you have to pick up your cross and follow him each and every day. Turn from your sin. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day of your lives. I want to close with this question. And I want to ask you this. Who are you wearing? Are you reflecting something of the nature and the character of Jesus Christ? Does people see Jesus Christ in you? And I want to ask you another question. I want to ask you to examine yourself. What is those areas that the Lord and the Holy Spirit's really been prompting you to surrender to Him? I want to ask you to reflect on that. And those of you that don't know Him as Lord and Savior today, I want to ask you that same question. Who are you wearing? Do you resemble that demon-possessed man more than what you resemble Jesus? Do you resemble that society more than you resemble Jesus? Because if that's yes, if you answer yes to those questions, Jesus is pursuing you right now. He's knocking at the door of your heart right now. Will you open Will you answer to him? I want to call Pierre to, to lead us uh, into a time of ministry. Yeah, I just want to also close for us in prayer. Father God, what a privilege, Lord, to share your word. Dear God, I pray, Lord, would you cut hearts, Lord? Would you minister, Lord, to your people? Lord, if there's anybody that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior today, oh God, would you touch them, Lord? Lord, would you help them, Lord, to not be ashamed, Lord, but to just surrender themselves to you. I pray, Lord, open their hearts, open their ears, Lord, and open their eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.